You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, a member of the committee staff. This week's episode will be the rest of the panel, National Security, Where Are the Cyber Gaps?, held at the ABA annual meeting in San Francisco. You can listen to the start of the panel, which was a keynote speech from Gilman Louie, a partner at Alsup Louie Partners and the founder and former CEO of InQtel, in last week's episode. This week's episode will feature the rest of the panel with Gilman Louie, moderator Harvey Rishikoff, the former chair of the Standing Committee's Advisory Committee, and panelist Herbert Lin, a senior research scholar and a fellow in cyber policy and security at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, and Dina Temple-Raston, a special correspondent at NPR. You can learn more about the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security online and find out registration information for our fall annual conference, November 7th and 8th in D.C. Check us out at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. Enjoy the episode. There's nothing that Gilman said that I, I that that I disagree with. Although I would love to disagree with it. I mean, I I I, I want to think that he's wrong on on, on stuff there, but he's not. Um, and, and what he basically described was the weaponization, uh, not just of the internet, but of the First Amendment, right? And and, and that's uh, that that's where I want us to concentrate my uh, my, my my remarks here. Um, the uh, as one preliminary, I want to point out that if you look up the official U.S. government definition of cybersecurity, the term cybersecurity, the best definition I know of is, is in NSPD 54, which talks about the protection of U.S. government, uh, sorry, which talks about the protection of uh, computers and information within it, essentially. Okay. Note, doesn't say anything about human minds. It doesn't say anything about protecting how people think, the, the perceptions of people, and so on. So what Gilman, is, what, what Gilman has outlined is that it, what, he sa- what he's saying is that cyber has gone from attacking computers to attacking human minds. That's a deep and profound shift in, in it, so much so that the U.S. government hasn't caught up with that, right, because it still uses this definition of cyber as just protecting computers. In fact, I think that it's too hard to change that definition, but that, 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 that's a, 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 a small detail. Right now, the question is, how do you attack, how do you protect human minds? And that's, an, that's, that's a, a very interesting question. Among other things, um, it calls for the expertise, not of engineers, but of psychologists, right? Uh, a couple of days ago, I spent, a, you know, half an hour wandering around the job, you know, USA jobs and, and trying to look at the various cyber commands and so on. Cyber commands. To look for jobs, it's you know psychologists. Not a single one. I saw lots of jobs for engineers, lots of people with jobs for people with technical training. Not a single job for a psychologist, okay, who understands how people think. Uh, and that's an interesting observation to me. Their cyber command, U.S. Cyber Command, is fundamentally oriented towards thinking about how you hack computers and how you prevent computers from being hacked. That's its fundamental orientation. Uh, and and, and um, uh, what all of that means is that everything that comes out of what you talk about as cybersecurity, you talk to somebody, some geek somewhere, says, you, are you working on cybersecurity? He says, yes. 
Whatever that person is, go- is coming out with, he's not going to help you with dealing with information warfare or information or influence operations. Because it's, it's operating in a, in, a, uh, in a completely different space. So with that out of the way, let me point out that the, you know, the First Amendment basically is, essentially embodies the idea of a, the, a marketplace of ideas. Right? The marketplace of ideas is where ideas get challenged with each other and, and, and good ideas rise to the top and, and um, uh, the, the, the cure for bad speech is more speech. And we've all heard these things before. Right. Well, um, in an era of social media and, and, and the internet and so on, where the volume of information is increased by 10 orders of magnitude, factors of 10 billion, think about it, a factor of 10 billion, okay. um, it's really not clear that the cure for bad speech is more speech. Okay. Because how are you going to make sense out of it all? Uh, and, uh, I, I submit to you that the, uh, that the marketplace, that the information marketplace of ideas has failed. Is a, is a failed marketplace. It's premised on the idea of, of free exchange, uh, of ideas, rational and reasoned debate, um, de- deliberation, education, all that sort of stuff. You can see all of these words in, in various decisions over the past hundred years in Supreme Court jurisprudence about, in, in interpreting what the First Amendment means with respect to, 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 to free speech. Um, and I submit to you, it's just not working. Okay? Now, what's happened, I mean, let me give you one example, just one example of this. If you talk to the psychologists, they know very, very well that exposure to bad, not bad ideas, misleading ideas, false information, doesn't go away when you correct it. Right? The phrase for this is the continuing influence effect or belief perseverance. There are many terms in the, in the psychological literature about it. But this means that if you come up, so the idea is I, I give you an, you know, an idea that, that you know, Clinton is running a sex ring out of a pizza parlor. In, in, in Washington, D.C. I've been to that it's pizza Just a hypothetical. Yeah, just, a, just a hypothetical, right. Just a hypothetical, right. I tell you, I, I tell you about this, and you say, oh, that, that, that shows how terrible she is, blah, blah. You form an opinion based on it. Then you come along and you conclusively debunk it. What the guy says is, what the person says is, well, maybe that didn't happen. But she could have done it. She would have done it if she could have. And uh, it doesn't matter. The belief for the, the impressions formed from that piece of information remain, even though the factual basis has been taken away. Okay. This is well documented uh, and happens a lot. This is, you, and all of you know this. When you talk about corrections to a, you know, an article in the newspaper and, and, and so on, they don't mean anything in terms of how the impressions uh, get, get, get formed. Uh, so um, the... The, the, wherever the, the, uh, the bubble chart is, one of the most interesting things about it is it talks about the role of DOD and about, and, and DHS and DOJ, um, about, uh, dealing with cyber, just cyber alone. That's with the old, with the NSPD 54 definition. A hundred iterations, and there's this very interesting line underneath it that says, and nothing in this is expected, is supposed to change any of the responsibilities of any agency. It took a hundred iterations to come up with the bubble chart on something that's far narrower, okay? 
And everybody, I think, would, uh, would, would appreciate now that cyber, just cyber, the traditional problem with cyber is not, you know, it, it, it's not an agency problem. It's a whole of government problem, right? I would say it's even worse than that. It's a whole society problem, right? And that's the challenge that 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 we uh, that that we're facing uh, when we you know when th that's that's the challenge that that, that uh, Gilman uh, lays lays down okay? is how to deal with that uh, in, in a way that respects our values. I don't know how to do that. So the provocative statement, which I hate to say. And I don't even really believe what I'm about to say to you, but because I, Harvey asked me to be provocative, I'm going to say it, okay? But you have tenure. Right. I don't, but. The, well, then be careful. Well, 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 be careful. No, no. Then be careful. Right. The, you know, no, that, that, the on, that the only way that I can see to deal with information warfare and influence operations is to scrap most of the jurisprudence on the First Amendment over the past hundred years. Now, I hate that answer. I don't endorse the answer. But that, and so if that's what I'm concluded, you know, if that's how I, if that's where I come out, sort of my view of all of this is we're screwed. Okay. And, it's a Latin and, term that right. we, yeah, and, 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 it, and I would love to, and I would love to have somebody here tell me why I'm wrong. So we'll engage the conversation. Um, so in the article, those of us who remember when we took uh, constitutional may, may law. I just, just for a second, of course. May I just respond to as I'm, the I'm gonna First get, Amendment I'm, person? I'm actually going to okay. let you respond. Okay. okay. So <laughs> I'm going to give you ample time. Because I like the First Amendment. Okay. So <laughs> I do too. <laughs> Who doesn't? That's why it's first. Right. So um, <laughs> in 1927, Justice Lewis Brandeis, in a concurring opinion in Whitney v. California, which you all remember, stated, "No danger flowing from speech can be deemed clear and present." unless the incidence of the evil apprehended is so imminent that it may befall before. before there is an opportunity for full discussion. If there be time to expose through discussion the falsehood and fallacies, to avert the evil by the process of education, the remedy to be applied is more speech, not enforced silence, unless an emergency can justify repression. So the time, time compliance that Gilman talked about is raising this issue, and then the that, idea that Herb raised about persuasion. So the final frontier, which I'm going to have Dina address, is the final battleground that we understand is critical is the six inches between your ears. So I've been teaching for over 45 plus years, and I will tell you that six inches sometimes is dense. Sometimes it's porous. <laughs> Sometimes it's malleable. Did you say porous or potus? I said porous. <laughs> and sometimes it's a rock. So this issue, which is your line of business, Dina, you represent on this panel part of the First Amendment. What is your reaction and response to what you see your role in this gap-filling issue given where we're at, given the world that Gilman has sketched, and now Herb's challenge that there's something going on that is truly revolutionary about how we understand persuasion in the 21st century. Well, uh, one of the points that, that Gilman made that I thought is sort of important is you talked about this reduction of time for response, and then you talked about it in financial terms. Uh, I should talk about it in journalistic terms. 
because we have the exact same problem. And that is that something happens and we have to find a way to respond to it to try and set it right much faster than I've ever had to do before. And, uh, and it's hard to figure out what's right. You end up still making the phone calls to the sources you have within government because you assume whatever is coming in might be wrong. And all you have as a journalist, at least, you know, everyone talks about how biased various journalists, uh, journalistic or media organizations are. The truth is, as a journalist, particularly a long-time one, the only thing you have is your reputation. So you cannot be biased and you cannot be wrong. And putting out corrections is just not an option. It really isn't, for exactly the reason that you say, because whatever sees the correction, all they remember, even if it's slight. Um, and I come from, I'm a very old school journalist where like, even if there's a slight, slight, like I get a middle name wrong, I, I beat myself up for weeks for not checking it a third time. And there's still some journalists out there who still do that. Um, the, so that's the first thing I would say in terms of Gilman. In terms of uh, her, you know, you were talking about uh, how Cybercom doesn't have psychologists. So as part of this series of radio specials that will be coming out next month uh, called I'll Be Seeing You, and it's about, it's a series of shows that basically the public service is to try to explain technologies to uh, NPR listeners, and specifically technologies like uh, artificial intelligence, like what a hack really is, and how the guy who is hacking into your computer is not some computer genius from Nigeria, but actually can buy a $5 program on Facebook that will allow him to find the holes in your computer, which I don't think most people realize. I think they actually think there are a lot of really computer whizzes in Nigeria, and there aren't. And, and, and then this other idea of offensive cyber, which is used all the time in the newspaper and is never defined. And if you ask the average intelligent, informed person what's offensive cyber, they might be able to say cyber bomb, but if you ask them what a cyber bomb is, they have absolutely no idea. And so there's some task forces that they're starting to set up within Cybercom that are quite interesting. There was the task force Ares, which was the one that was uh, completely focused on ISIS. And one of the shows that we're working on that'll be out uh, at the end of September focuses on uh, how offensive cyber actually works. And Ares, what made it really different, is that it had behavioralists who were part of the team. So there were people who were actually looking at the way people were consuming ISIS propaganda and the way that uh, ISIS was formed behind the scenes. So how did these relationships work? How did Ahmed uh, work with Mohammed to put up a propaganda video for ISIS? And how do you stop that kind of relationship? How do you build fissures within that? And uh, allegedly, and I haven't reported this out yet, the Russia group is organized in much the same way, that they're trying to understand the behavioral aspect of this, which they hadn't in the past. What did you ask me? Those were the two so, things. Um, <laughs> so as, we, as many of us in this room know, we remember General Cardone, who was deeply involved in setting this up, and now General Nakasone is taking this over. This is this new Russian. So clearly... DOD has taken the perspective of leaning forward, which is the new theory of persistent engagement, in order, as Herb was saying, in a very technical cyber defense way, but clearly, as Dina doesn't want to scoop herself, clearly there's another aspect of the psychological impact that we're involved in. And that raises, which I'm going to ask the three of you, this concept of a deep fake, 
this technical ability that we are creating to manipulate the pixels so it's very hard to know what an authentic image is. Do we have to look at technology to try to resolve that given the providence? Or are we going down a path in which we do not know conclusively what objective truth is in a pixel or a statement? Is that a postmodern world which will be very difficult for us to navigate, let alone for the military to understand what is going out in, the situ in, in, in their area of responsibilities, given well, no one will know what was an actual event and what it's what he said or she said, was there a bomb that went off? What if we go to that, Gilman? What is the Silicon Valley solution for us that you are generating, given your investments? Well, I mean, at, at one level, let me kind of put it technical. Okay, very quickly, right? So, low. There's been this false belief, right, that photography and video and sound can be trusted, even in the old days, right? It really depends on how a photographer frames the picture, what's in the frame, what's not in the frame. Was that just a moment? Did she really look that ugly, or was that just that one frame in the facial expression of something that was cut out? Right. You mean ugly in the sense of aesthetic issues? Yeah, yeah whatever. <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, remember that, remember that famous picture of, of, of the, the, shooter person, in, the shooter in Vietnam? It, the right? shooter in Vietnam. You're right, talking right. about the, the Kennedy picture right. of the alleged assassin. So, 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 I mean, you, we can go through this, but, but we have this grand, and we reinforce it with new technology, right? We're going to put a camera on every cop, thinking that's the solution to find truth. And um, so, so I start with, Deep face is just this current technology application. Some of it is usually quite good, right? I mean, we use that same technology to in Hollywood all the time. Uh, that technology can be very powerful uh, force in expression uh, of satire and other kinds of things uh, in the First Amendment. So. Yes, I think technology has some level of help. Like, if we can detect deep fakes, perhaps internet companies can like filter at some level. At least the, you know, the novice kind of approach. And clearly, not the nation states who are trying to do this. But here's the other thing: right? deep fakes is actually the easy part. The hard part is when ML and AI gets to such a point where it knows what you're going to do statistically if I put a certain image in front of you because I have a deep profile of you and I can reinforce all of that information by surrounding you with what you see on the phone, by the screen you pass in the hall, by the thing that you read and the IM message that you get, then it becomes really, really powerful. Right. The deep fake itself is kind of cute, but when you integrate that and you do it at scale with time compression, you do things like, you know, influence not just a human. I mean, it's not just, by the way here, it's not just like getting a human to do things. As we rely more on AI-driven systems, it's also getting our AI systems to do things. I feed it what it wants to see so I get to make it do what I want it to do. It doesn't matter if it's a human or a machine on the other end. So I'm going to let Dina, then I'll go down to her. But Dina, you've done some machine learning, artificial intelligence work in your research. 
how do you respond and what's some examples that you're seeing that you want to talk about in this context? I agree deep fakes are a bit of a party trick. Yeah. Uh, and everyone's talking about it because they've just like learned about it. But it's actually a party trick. You need all the other stuff to, to, to fold into that. I There's a woman named Dawn Song who's from US, uh, UC Berkeley. So has anyone ever heard of Dawn Song? S-O-N-G. There you go. Okay. Uh, so Dawn Song... Uh, basically created the experiment that went viral about why we should be a little worried about AI and its abilities. And the experiment was as follows. She has a, a video of two stop signs. And uh, one of her researchers is holding the stop sign. And she's created a subtitle at the bottom of these twin screen videos that tell you what the AI is kind of deciding, right? What is its decision-making process. It's coming up to the stop sign. It's beginning to sort of it sees the stop sign. It's beginning to think about what the stop sign actually says. So using equations, she was able to manipulate the stop sign by putting two stickers on it, one under the S and one above the O. And by putting those two stickers on the stop sign, the autonomous vehicle that was looking at the stop sign read it as speed limit 45 miles an hour and blew through the, the intersection. And the exact same system, when the stop sign was unmanipulated, was stopped. And what this, uh, and she's fascinating uh, in a lot of ways. She's from China, and she's still a Chinese national, and she has basically created the fear of AI that probably a lot of people really understand it have had for some time. But she basically, no one really believes an autonomous car after seeing this particular video is something that you should drive in comfortably. In fact, she, she said, I said, would you like to go into an autonomous car? And she said, no, maybe I'll take a test drive, but... She doesn't trust it. Interestingly, her stop sign has become so iconic that it is now physically in uh, the London Museum of Science and Technology with, in a complete display. Um, so that whole sort of AI aspect of it, I think that uh, what we're starting to understand is that the great promise we've had in it for so long maybe isn't quite by a long shot there yet. There's a great video in our, our AI episode of, of this uh, radio specials. It's a video made in 1956 by General Motors. And it's, um, it says, let's turn this dial and go forward to 1976. And they go to 1976, and they're, they're sort of singing songs in this car that looks like a spaceship. And they said, look, it's 1976. We're on the driverless car now. And they go into a lane, and they take their hands off the wheels, and they light a cigar and start eating ice cream. And... Um, they were sure in 1956 that by 1976 we'd have this solved. And I think that we were sure in 2000 that by 2019 we'd have it solved. And at least in Don Song's opinion, we're closer, but we're not really as close as people think we are. So, Herb, what's your sense? You know we're spending a lot of money at the National Science and Foundation and NSA funding your universities to try to resolve this AI issue, doing test beds, multiple sensors, are we going to get there and, or are we going to get to a world where we won't be able to distinguish what reality is or we will have enough provenance in technology? Uh, where, let, where do you break? Let, let me, I'll address both of those. Yeah. Uh, on, on, on the first one, there's an old saying among those of us who've been around technology for a long time. There are three roads to ruin. Sex is the most fun, alcohol is the fastest, technology is the most certain. 
Okay. And good to know. Her. Okay. And if you and if you and if you've been in and if you've been in a room where somebody had to change this out the, the projector or the the computer displaying the PowerPoint slides. There is always a fumbling around that takes at least two or three minutes to get the damn computer to work right. Okay, you all recognize that phenomenon. Okay, until you can deal with that kind of issue, I'm not getting into a self-driving car. <laughs> now, ap ap apropos of uh, uh, Gilman's comments about deepfakes and, and and so on, I just have two observations about that. One is that. The reception of the Pelosi video showed that you don't need deep fakes. Dumb fakes are just fine. Right? That people circulated the very crude, obviously doctored fake, and it did its job in, in, in terms of reinforcing opinion and, and, and creating buzz, you know, et cetera. All, all those sorts of things. Okay? And, you know, she could have been drunk. Right? I mean, this is what she would have liked had she been, you know, drunk. I mean, it's made, you, you make that kind of, take that kind of argument. So, there's a sense in, I'm gonna think Dina is right when she says that, that, um, deep fakes are, are, you know, are, are the newest shiny toy on, and that's what people are paying attention to. And yes, it's a terrible thing, and I agree with that. I, I yes, I'm absolutely right. But the dumb stuff is, uh, the crude stuff, as Gilman had pointed out earlier, has been around for a long time, and they were particular. You know, they they were effective too. Okay. The second point is that on the deep fake stuff, I actually know how to solve a bit of you know an important part of the problem. That is, I know how to create a device or software or something like that that will actually sign an image or a video or a sound clip or something like that, and have provenance behind it. I know how to do that technically. In fact, there are two computer, there are two camera manufacturers that market image authentication systems for exactly this purpose. What you can do is you can trace back the a picture that it takes to a registered, uh, you know, to, to a registered device, and then you have to make sure that there, it was the guy who purchased the, the device that took the picture and all all that sort of stuff. But the more important point is, who cares? Does anybody care that some picture what came from this? In some contexts, yes. You could say, for example, that only you know authenticated pictures like this uh, would could appear as court evidence. You could say that. I mean, I, I'm not advocating that, but you could say that. Okay. Um, in some contexts, you could you know you, you you could enforce it, but for the moat for the you you, I mean. Imagine the idea of trying to pass a law that said that only pictures that had been so authenticated like this could appear in the newspaper or online. That would really, talk about treading on the First Amendment, right? That would really be an awful thing. That's the sort of thing that I'm concerned with. When I say that you have to, you have to throw out the First Amendment to be able to deal with problems, that's the kind of problem I mean. And I don't want to throw out the First Amendment just to make it clear, right? A lot of you have taken oaths to say, to, to serve, you know, to, to defend the Constitution of the United States. I did too. Okay? It's an important thing in our lives. And for me to be saying this is awful. But, you know, and just go back to the First Amendment just for a second. And I, I get that 
Because I'm not the lawyer to room as Harvey. But you are married to him. I am brilliant married to him. Right, exactly. <laughs> Which is where you get most of your legal opinions. <laughs> it's, it's usually on my cups of coffee either in the morning or in the evening after <laughs> deal with our kids, our teenagers. Um, but look, there are some principles in the First Amendment, right? And the, you know, the, the principle of you can't stand up in a the theater and scream fire. And so, so we can take. So let me just debate that um, because um, uh, we say that now, First Amendment said that what what Holmes was trying to get at was when you have a bell goes off, you instantly respond to a bell. You don't debate a bell. But if it's an individual screaming fire, you might want to debate that individual. So it's again the theory that he was trying to use yes. was technology resulted in curbing debate. Whereas in reality, if someone would have said something, you could say, what, what do you smell it? But the bell means you do not debate it. Right. So. And, and what's interesting about that framework is when I launch an attack, an I.O. attack across the social media, that is not an individual. I'm sending the bell. Right? I am ringing the bell. And so perhaps by going back to some first principles, implying in light of this new technology. Remember, generally, for the most part, technology is relatively neutral, right? It's the use of the technology for good or bad. And we need to focus in on the use and the user who intends it. And again, raise that cost or those consequences for that misuse of that technology. And so as we come up with possible pieces of legislation after legislation, we've got a deep fake piece of legislation right now in, in sitting in subcommittee uh, uh, right now. There's like four or five other bills looking at to try to solve a technical problem with legislation. I personally don't think that's the right way to go. So right. let, me just, let me just break on this and get you guys to also focus on what you respond. So one of the issues that this area raises is the famous Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And it's a little act, little section that was tucked away in the act. And what it reads is as follows. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. So social media, for the big of all stepped away, because they say it's not our responsibility. We are just almost like a bulletin board. And we should not be held accountable. That's a big issue. So I know, Dina, where do you, is that an appropriate way of understanding the First Amendment? What do you three think is the appropriate way if you were advising someone on the Hill? Should we, and you did some work in terrorism where this was used, where the social media removing that information. Allegedly. Allegedly. Where do you, where do you break on that, given your deep commitment to the First Amendment? I think it's a really a hard issue, actually. And um, there's a reputational issue that is really different, that what you expect from Facebook versus what you expect from NPR are two totally different things. So if Facebook puts out a photograph that's wrong or a deep fake, okay, so they did that. Oops. If we do it, it's news. Um, and so that's, that's, that's part of the issue. And... Um, if you look at what ISIS, so I covered terrorism for years for NPR, and if you look at what ISIS was able to do with social media um, and the number of people that it was able to reach, and social media companies who will remain nameless that were some of their favorite social media companies, 
would continually say that they had removed 95% of ISIS's content on their platforms, and it was complete nonsense. And the media, for the most part, and I, not NPR, but the media, for the most part, said, hey, they're removing it as fast as they can, and they weren't. And there's sort of a, I just don't understand particularly the disconnect between, okay, you're able to take child pornography and find that and take it down. And then, but you can't find the beheading videos of ISIS and take those down. Um, I have a comment about that. Okay. Okay, my, how am I doing? Is it a negative comment? Yes. <laughs> but we can talk Excellent. later. That's why Herb's on the panel. Wow. <laughs> Look at the time. Are we done? Are we over at three? Oh my God, we still have oh half an hour. So, but I. <laughs> Uh, I, I think that, the, that, that there's a real, um, and then you can jump in, I just think that there's a real tension there between those things, and, and we haven't been able to find the middle ground between those things, and we're looking for it, and we haven't been able to find it. And they have been hiding behind this idea that, hey, we're just a platform, not our fault, and, and I don't know that that really works anymore. I think that that is kind of a specious argument on, on the part of these platforms, because they have it both ways. You know, come to us for information. We're your news source, and it, they aren't. They aren't using the same sort of uh, base principles that we use as, a, as journalists. Okay, Herb, your, rebut, your rebuttal time. The, I actually am symp sympathetic to a lot of what you said. I, just, I don't like the child pornography issue for a very specific reason. That is, mo the vast majority of child pornography that they take down has already been, there's no dispute about it, because it's a repeat image, it's already been adjudicated to be child pornography in a court of law. It's, it's, it's not as though there's a program that's looking at these images and says, aha, that's child pornography. It's not, that's not what is happening. Okay. And to do the beheading videos, that's what you need. You need something that watches a video and understands that as a beheading video or whatever it is. Okay. And that technology just is not there. So, you know, there's a famous story. There's the iconic the vision and picture in Vietnam of that young, small, naked child running down yeah. the street. Right. And when that first came up, their algorithms took it down because it was child pornography. And then they had to say, no, look at the context. This is actually a form of political speech, and it should be put back up. So that became the tension between what machine learning could understand versus the context of individuals. Well, you know, there's, there's another factor here, which is, you know, complicating things. I am not sure that I fully like the idea of technology companies using their judgment as to what stays up and what comes down. And the reason for that is, look, we have a very different view of, of speech than perhaps maybe a country like China. Right. And if we allow technology companies on their own, without any kind of frameworks or guidance or uh, uh, understanding of what is legitimate speech, if, if they get to choose what is legitimate speech, in fact, what, what's happening then is a kind of form of censorship. And you can easily go down that road. And I've seen it. I mean, I, I had this little thing. It's a little thing, right? And my wife and I were joking about it the other day, right? There's a big argument whether or not I am a HBS alumni because I went to the advanced management program, right? No, you're not. You're not. Right. Harvard says, <laughs> Harvard says I am. I know, right, that's because right. it's for financial purposes. Yeah, of course. 
So there's a big argument for all of us AM peers, all right? On the internet, where the Wikipedia, there's a group of people on Wikipedia, right? These, uh, that's the, the editors, right? Are saying nobody from the AMP should be allowed to be considered a Harvard graduate. A Harvard grad? No, not graduate. Alumni. Alumni, okay. For right. fun. Right. And so, so this is what happens, right, when you, and I said, well, shouldn't, you know, the, the other line of it, shouldn't the university make that decision? Regardless of whether it's a good decision or not, it is not up to a group of technical technologists to make decisions based on content on their personal sensibilities. So I worry, given the fact that I live in this state, allowing large numbers of my companies around here, many of which I invest in, to use judgment of, because that gets back to the point of speech, right? I don't think that's the remedy. So if we start making those companies liable for that, now we may think about things like safe harbors, that you know, here are some requirements that if you do these things that are reasonable, right, you're not liable against you know, things are, are being attacked from nation states or whatever that may be. Maybe that's a better approach, but simply saying, you know what, I don't like InfoOps this week, so let's just take it down. Do we really want to give technology companies that level of censorship and power? Don't they already have it in places like Germany where they're not allowed mm -hmm. to have any content right. that talks yeah. about... But that's their laws. Nancy Parapanaya. Yeah. Right. That's their laws. So you should, all, you should feel comfortable because we have an <laughs> answer... Customers to this problem, which is the resolution that's before the House, uh, which is by the science and technology law, which is resolved that the American Bar Association urges courts and lawyers to address the emerging ethical and legal issues related to the usage of artificial intelligence, including bias, explainability, I don't even know if that's a word, but explainability, and the transparency of automated decisions made by AI, ethical and beneficial usage of AI, and controls and oversight of AI and the vendors that provide AI. So we will be able to resolve the problem, clearly, as attorneys on this issue. And once <laughs> we pass the resolution, we're done. So it's, you know, apparently the association <laughs> believes that's not complicated. So, <laughs> so a delegate, of course. So the, the, issue, <laughs> the issue is that we're having is we're being brought into this as a profession. And the question is, how is the profession going to do the educational phenomena and left and right margins? And DOD is particularly going to be brought into this issue. And what the JAG Corps is going to figure out about what they're going to be able to say and influence it is going to help define what's going forward. So with this, I know the time is flying. Do any of the panelists have any particular issue they would like to put on the table before I open up for questions? Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. You can hear the full audio, including the keynote speech and questions at the end, on our website at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. Also at our website, you can find out more information about the 29th Annual Review of the Field of National Security Law CLE Conference this November, November 7th and 8th, in downtown Washington, D.C. Check us out online, learn more about the conference, and register at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. You can also shoot us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org, follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or subscribe on your podcast app of choice to get new episodes every week. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.
The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.